Listener Production. <clears throat> Take it away, my slightly younger, dulcet toned Donis. Hello, everybody. <laughs> that was good. So, guys, this is uh, my nephew, Muhammad, who we've talked about quite a lot over the years. He's a little bit famous on the pod. And uh, today, he is helping me do a little record. So, welcome. Yeah. Welcome, friend of the pod, Muhammad, and welcome, Gistners, to Just the Gist, a weekly ish podcast where I, Rosie Waterland, normally give my co host, Jacob Stanley, the gist of what he needs to know about a story to make him sound interesting enough to share at a dinner party, but he's still off gallivanting around the globe the Australia part of it at least. So I've got little Muhammad here to fill in today and we're going to do a little uh, deep dive back into the archives again and bring you some greatest hits. What's your favourite episode we've ever done, Muhammad? Favourite episode has to be The Junkman. The which one? Oh, the trash man. The trash man. The trash man. Oh, yeah. yeah, everybody loves the trash. I love that you call it the junk man. <laughs> I mean, it sounds, it sounds that kind sounds, of like it. So. It does. That sounds better. The trash man is a favourite. And then um, a lot of people liked the one last week about the guy at the bottom of the ocean. Have you listened to one that, that one yet? No, but I've heard about it. He, is he stuck in the bottom of the ocean on a shipwreck? Yes. And he survives for a Days. Yes. How do you, did you see that on TikTok? You watched too much TikTok. Yeah. Um, I saw it on TikTok too. <laughs> That's where I got the idea to it. But everyone is saying that that one's kind of similar to the trash man. So um, today we are going to dive into the archives and do some live show greatest hits because not all y'all got to go to the live shows and we did some really great stories at those. So we want to bring them to you now if you missed them and if you saw them, well, here you go. Have another jisson. You're lucky. So sit back and relax and get ready to dive into the captivating stories of the balloon boy and the hoax of the hillbilly heist of 1997. Good job, except it's the Balloon Boy hoax and the Hillbilly Heist of 1997. Well, it sounds similar. All right, here we go. You will find out the shocking truth behind the supposed airborne adventure of young Falcon Heen, Balloon Boy. Recorded in front of a live studio audience. Okay, here we go. The year is 2009. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Special year for you. Someone just went, ooh. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Um, We'd only just recovered from those fabric belts from Supre. (laughs) We'd moved into those chunky side fringes that we hairsprayed down and took selfies of with our Sony Cybershot cameras, put on MySpace. And the Beyonce quiff. Um, yeah, the Beyonce quiff. That was big at the time Did as you, well. Do you know what a bump it is? Oh, of course yeah, I do. Yeah, to give you hair, like, thing under your height, hair. Volume, volume. Height, volume. Mm. Like, predominantly used by Karens now, but back then, all of us. <laughs> Avatar, the movie we all saw but don't remember a thing about, was in cinemas. <laughs> the poetic lyrics of Lady Gaga had just started hitting the radio, like... My, my, my poker face. My, my poker face. And my personal favourite, let's have some fun. This beat is sick. I want to take a ride on your disco stick. (laughs) 
2009 was also the year that for one tense day, we all got caught up in the drama of a little boy floating into space in a giant balloon. I am giving you just the gist of the balloon boy. <laughs> yeah, here we go. Strap in, mofos. <laughs> October 15, 2009, the Heen family in Colorado, USA, are filming a test of this giant helium balloon that they've been building in their backyard as kind of like a family project. The Heen family is made up of... <laughs> I, I didn't know, yeah. Sounds fun. My parents were drug addicts, so it's way above my head. Um, this is not a normal thing for families to do, though. <laughs> I, I wouldn't know. The Heen family is made up of Dad Richard, Mum Mayumi, and three sons, Falcon, who was six, Rio, who was eight, and Bradford, who was ten. Now, the dad, Richard, fancied himself a bit of an inventor. So, mm -hmm. like, he's always, like, patenting, patent, patenting crazy things. And um, this giant balloon was a prototype of something he'd been working on that I guess is what today is what drones are. Like, in his mind, he was building mm -hmm. towards a drone. And this balloon was, like, his first kind of prototype of it. So it had a basket down the bottom that is kind of the size of this table here. And then um, the balloon on top of it was about, like, the size of a trampoline with the net around it, like kids have today because they're wusses. Um, <laughs> and, and the whole thing, like the balloon itself was kind of made out of tarpaulin stuck together with duct tape and then the entire thing was covered in aluminium foil. So it looked like a kind of, like a giant flying saucer. Uh -huh. And um, that's what the family had been doing like for lols, I guess, fun. Um, they filled it with helium that they got, you know, like that you just get from, you can get it from like Big W today to fill up party balloons or whatever, but just like a, a lot more, than, like a lot more than that. Uh -huh. a, a lot of helium went in to fill up this thing. Uh -huh. And so the family's in the backyard, they're really excited, they're filming this experiment, it's the first time they've tried filling this thing up with helium and they're gonna see like if it floats. And it does, it starts floating, it rises up, but then it just keeps rising and rising and floats away. And that's when Richard realises that someone, cough him, forgot to tether down the balloon, forgot uh. there's a rope and he forgot to tie it uh. down. So this thing starts like floating away up into the sky and they're all screaming like, oh no, because they've been working really hard on it. They and they're like, like, how steer do... steer it with a remote control? No, it's because no? it's, it's, not, it's not like a drone. It is like his prototype. It is just a balloon with a basket. <laughs> There's no what steering. Invention. Yeah. Wow. And so they're all screaming, trying to get this thing back because they work really hard on it. And that's like a lot of foil, I guess. Um, and then while Mayumi and Richard are freaking out about how to like, get this thing back, Rio says, um, hey guys, um, Falcon's in the basket. <laughs> and they were like, what? And Rio and Bradford go, yeah, um, before you started putting the helium in, like, we thought it would be really funny and he climbed and hid in the basket. He's in the basket. Oh. And so then Richard and Mayumi freak out. He immediately calls 911. And you can listen to the recording. It's this bizarre call where he's like trying to explain to this woman, like, um, I built this balloon. It's like out of tap Hollands and it's covered in foil and we filled it with helium and there's a basket and my son's in the basket and my son's floating away in a balloon. And this woman's like, 
your son is floating away in a balloon and he's like yes it is literally really well built and it is floating away and you can hear Mayumi screaming in the background like ah! and so um once the 911 woman realizes like okay this is it's not just like a kid holding a balloon on a string who's fl- like you know it's mm-hmm. it's it's something's happened here um they are like, okay, we need to get rescue crews on this. And because all journalists have like, um, you know, I don't know, I see it on TV. Call radio, police. Like, they've got, they have police scanners. They're mm. connected to the wire. Um, and so they're, they're like journalists, local journalists hear this call and they're like, ding, 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 ding. Like a six-year-old kid could plummet to his death. Let's get out there. <laughs> so literally news choppers fly around, find this balloon straight away. So there's, it's on TV within minutes. Mm. Like it's, it's already all around everywhere and it goes viral like not just in the U- not just in Colorado not just in the US but across the world immediately like I remember watching it in real time in Australia like watching the news and being like there is a giant balloon up in the sky and there's a six-year-old boy in it and he could plummet to his death at any moment it's like best TV, TV ever good yeah because it's real <laughs> it's real you can't, like, create ratings like that, man. You can't create drama like that. Not even the maths producer could do that. <laughs> like, that's tough. Um, and so this thing, it was high in the air. Like, I'm not talking, like, you know, the ceiling here. This thing, at its highest, reached heights of over 2,000 metres. Like, that's two kilometres in the... That's in space. That's space. That's freezing, right? And there's yeah. no oxygen. What do they call it in um, cats? The... Uh, the, uh, the Stratus? Other- Oh. Yeah, the heavy side layer. Yeah, you nerd. Um, <laughs> that is space. And, and, and also, um, while it's going, it goes, it travels like almost 80 kilometres the whole time. So it's going fast and it's high, oh. this thing. Um, so the rescue squads were on it, but like there's not really a lot they can do because you can't put any other aircraft over near it because it's so it's made of foil and tarpaulins. <laughs> you can't like shoot it. You don't. So all that was happening was the news cameras were following it. Rescue crews were kind of just driving along, watching it. Like maybe we'll catch him. Like I, like there wasn't really any plan. Like just wait for it to come down. Hopefully before he gets sucked into space and his face explodes like Arnold Schwarzenegger oh. in that movie. So. <laughs> It's like the weirdest thing to think that we were all, like literally people were glued to their screens. It kind of took over every channel. And it's like, what are you watching? And it's like, oh my God, I'm just waiting to see if this small child plummets to his death. <laughs> like this is what everyone was it. watching. No, no it. one wanted to miss it. <laughs> so the balloon in the end is in the air for almost two hours. And like I said, travels um, 80 kilometres in that time. It ends up kind of floating down, I guess, when helium farts out, I don't know, like (laughs) exits the balloon. It started floating down. I mean, it lands in kind of this desolate desert area, which reminded me a lot of, um, because there's so many like news choppers and and, um, rescue vans and there's like a thousand people there. And it, but it's like this empty desolate space. And so it reminded me of that last scene in Thelma and Louise when they're in the desert, but there's like a thousand police cars (laughs) there. So it kind of floats down 
And this man from the rescue team runs over and grabs the rope that the dad, Richard, was meant to tie down, but he didn't. Um, And so he grabs onto it and then more men run over, they grab onto the rope and the balloon kind of just gently Oops, on the ground. Uh-huh. And, um, and like the news, like voiceover guy's like, okay, okay, that was a pretty soft landing. So we're, we're assuming that he's, he's fine because he couldn't have been injured. There hopefully no bad injuries. Like he's fine. He's in there. That was a soft landing. This is the best we could have hoped for. And so all these men run over and they rip the foil off and they open the basket and it's empty. <laughs> Falcon's Aww. not in the basket. And then someone in the media reports that, like, when the balloon was really high up in the air and they couldn't get a good visual, they could see, like, a shadow in their footage and so they think something fell out of the balloon. And so then the news starts reporting, like, okay, this isn't a rescue operation anymore, we're looking for a body. And so then they start going, okay, from point A to point B, it's 80 kilometres, we need to start looking this kid has fallen out of this thing. And so the media back at the Heen house are going nuts because they've had media there the whole time, like cameras on the family and um, the sheriff's there and they're like demanding answers from him and they're like, oh my God, we think he's fallen out. This is awful. This is the worst possible scenario. And then all of a sudden the sheriff gets a call and he turns to all the news cameras and he gives a thumbs up and he says, we found him. He's in the house. (laughs) (laughs) And he goes over to the cameras and he says, apparently the boy's been in there the whole time. He's been hiding in a cardboard box in the attic above the garage. And then he says, I don't want to conjecture, but this is not the first time we're searching for a kid. And once he realizes everyone is looking for him, he hides because he's afraid of getting in trouble. (laughs) So everyone is thrilled because honestly... Ten minutes ago, they thought this kid had died, and now they're like, thank God, yeah. we found him, he was in the house. Like, what a happy ending, what a cheeky little kid. But still, he's alive. This whole search and rescue operation at the end of the day cost $2 million. But this kid is alive. So, best possible scenario. He was safe, thank God. Everyone across the world wants to talk to this family after this. Um, And so the next day, the whole family sit down for an interview with CNN. And um, this is the infamous interview that a lot of people have watched. And um, this is the interview that a lot of people know this story from. Mm -hmm. So um, they're asking Falcon, like, what were you doing up in the attic the whole time? And he said, well, um, you know, I, I went up there and I was playing with some toys and then I took a nap. And then when I got bored, I just came out. And, and the news anchor says to him, but, you know, did you hear anyone, like, calling out for you because everyone was looking for you? And he says, oh, yeah, yeah, I heard people calling my name. And his mum turns to him and she's like, you heard people, sweetie? Like, oh, why didn't you say anything? And then Falcon looks really confused and he turns to his mum and he said, well, um, because you guys said that we were doing this for a show. <gasps> oh! Oh, the parents are record scratch. Oh. So, this felt fishy. Yeah. This, so yeah. Richard and Mayumi look like deers in the headlights when he says this. They're like, and the two other brothers were like, <gasps> like they knew that he'd mm. like he he that he wasn't meant to say whatever he just said. <laughs> and so the interviewer presses and he's like, wait, wait, what do you mean doing it for a show? What does that mean? And his dad's like, oh, he doesn't know what he means. He oh, he's a kid, he doesn't know. And so at that moment, the whole world was like, oh, my fucking God, you guys staged 
this. Anything for attention. Yeah, and the fallout happens fast. Like, they were loved for about 24 hours, but life proved, like, moves pretty fucking quickly when people think there's going to get some short and proud out of you. So, like, mm. they were like... Get them. <laughs> so the media digs into the Heen family and it turns out that Richard and Mayumi are failed actors who met at drama school. <laughs> <laughs> how pathetic. Don't see how that's relevant. Oh, what losers. Links for attention. Let it go. What losers. Can you imagine? Oh. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> they were failed actors who had met at drama school. <laughs> they had been on the reality show Wife Swap twice. <laughs> and after that, Richard had spent some time as a salesman for a Segway company. <laughs> <laughs> No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. They were on Wife Swap twice. They were on Wife Swap twice and... Every time I think it will be funny and every time it just ends up disruptive. Are you readjusting your balls? Do you need a moment? <laughs> come up out of your mouth? I don't understand how all that works, so I don't... Okay. Keep going, keep We're going. good to move going. on? You know this is going to Attention take Attention seekers, us. <laughs> We're on Wife Swap twice. And for the last six months before this incident, Richard had been shopping around a reality show kind of like about their kooky family and like their fun science experiments that they do together and they hadn't been getting any interest. And so with that history, it didn't take long for everyone in the world to be like, when Falcon said you did this for a show, it's because you two, Richard and Mayumi, set this up as a publicity stunt to try and get interest in selling a reality show. And um, I think they would have got it. They almost Because did. these three kids, the three boys, were so cute. Mm. Richard was kind of a weirdo and they did all these experiments. It, like, they, if Falcon hadn't, you know, if not for that pesky kid... Mm. They would have got a reality show, yeah. I think. But, like, with all this in hindsight, you look back at the footage they were filming that day of the balloon and you realise, like, how bad the acting is. Like, the kids are like, <laughs> oh, no, Falcon's in the basket. And Richard's like, what? And he's like, I've got to call 911. And Mayumi's like, my son, my son. And, like, you just watch it in a whole different light when you know this. Um... So there was an investigation and uh, the sheriff in town announced soon that, yes, they had decided after investigating that they think the whole thing was a publicity stunt. Both Richard and Mayumi were interviewed and charged and in that interview, Mayumi admitted that um, she knew all along that Falcon was hiding in the attic. Um, she also said that they'd planned the hoax about two weeks earlier and um, they instructed their three children to lie to the authorities and whoever asked them about it, which is really horrible because um, most people have seen the CNN interview where Falcon says the thing about the show. 
But what they don't realise is the family at first didn't realise how badly that had landed. So they did a bunch of interviews after that one that day. And um, a few interviewers said to Falcon, like, what did you mean when you said that thing about the show? And he threw up. Oh. Because Aww. he was so nervous because he knew he'd screwed up and he, you know, like the pressure on a little kid. Yeah, I that's know. that's not fair they did that to them. So Mayumi admitted we told the kids they had to lie and um, it was all, like, to market themselves for you know, media TV opportunities. Um, but Mayumi also later said that she was a Japanese resident, she was married to Richard, but she wasn't yet an American resident. And she said she that was all lies, she only admitted it because they threatened her with deportation. So she, like, took back her admission. Okay. But anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, Richard and Mayumi both pled guilty which, again, later they both said because they were worried Mayumi would get deported, but the authorities said that we were never going to do that, but whatever. Richard got 90 days in jail, 100 days community service. He had to pay $36,000 in restitution, which, like, it cost, it cost $2 million, $2 million. Oh, whatever. Mm. Um, and he had to write an apology letter to all the agencies that searched for Falcon that day. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, most devastatingly, though, the two wife swap episodes they were in were never aired again. <laughs> now, there was a lot of attention on the family over the years, um, but they kind of did just uh, not do any interviews until... Richard started suddenly doing a lot of interviews in the media and he was saying, you know, I only pleaded guilty because I had to, I did it for my wife, this wasn't a hoax, it was a genuine accident, we really thought he was in there. Oh, and by the way, while I've got all these cameras here, my three sons have formed the world's youngest heavy metal band and you can book them at this website. (laughs) So he kind of just started marketing for his kids and they, they did form what they say is the world's youngest heavy metal band. It's called Heen Boys, Boys with a Z. <laughs> you can still go to their uh, website right now if you Google it. Um, and they have a video clip on YouTube where they're like singing and head thrashing in front of this really dodgy green screen that has images of the big silver balloon on it. Oh. And the song is called No Hoax. Oh, so they're trying to keep the lie alive. I guess. They're now, like, uh, Falcon, I think, is about 19 and the other two are about 22, 24. Uh And, yeah, you can, if if you would like the world's youngest heavy metal band to play No Hoax at your next birthday party or bar mitzvah. Look into it. You can book them online. And that is just the gist of the Balloon Boy. Now, fasten your seatbelts as we transport ourselves into the year 1997 and deep into the heart of the Appalachian Mountains. In a small town, tucked away from prying eyes, a group of audacious thieves carried out what can only be described as... A hillbilly heist. A hillbilly heist. With meticulous planning, cunning tactics and a dash of audacity, these rural bandits managed to steal an astonishing fortune. So join us as we follow the twists and turns of this robbery, looking into the jaw-dropping outcome that left authorities and locals totally dumbfounded. This, my friends, is The Hillbilly Heist.
All right. So strap in, I'm going to tell you a story about some naive rednecks who managed to steal... Oh, we've got some fans in the house. These particular rednecks were successful in stealing $17 million worth of cash in the US in 1997. So we're talking about $41 million of Australian currency today. That's a lot. And they could have got away with it if only they'd followed the plan they'd set up for themselves. Sadly, they did not. Things ended badly. This is just the gist of what's known as the hillbilly heist of 1997. Now, you can probably guess it's given that name because everyone involved lived in trailer parks in North Carolina. No crackalacky. They all ate biscuits and gravy, breakfast, lunch and dinner and drank sweet tea. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the main character is a guy called David Gant. He was 27 at the time and he was miserable. He was in a marriage that he felt was pretty loveless. He was barely making ends meet despite working 70 to 80 hours every single week at his job as a supervisor at a company called Loomis Fargo that transported cash around the city. The only excitement he had in his life was this flirtatious friendship he had with an ex-colleague called Kelly. And in David's mind, Kelly was the perfect woman because she loved NASCAR and she rode quad bikes and she watched action movies. So he was smitten with her and completely worshipped her. I bet she's her. one of those girls who like, who's like, I don't even like wine. I like beer. Oh, yeah. I'm not like other girls. Mm-hmm. I like beer and yeah. sports. Very much acted Love like one of the boys. Girls. <laughs> she was married herself to a man named Spanky, I might add. Spanky. Mm-hmm. Spanky. But she led David on because she really enjoyed the attention she got from him. Mm. Now, David's miserable job at Loomis involved moving money around all day long in this armoured truck, taking it between banks and ATMs and the giant vault that they had at the base um, for Loomis. Mm. And he was handling millions of dollars every single day, which meant that he was having to wear body armour and carry a gun everywhere he went. So it was a super dangerous job, but he was only getting paid $8 an hour because... America. Yeah, right. And every single day, without fail, everyone at the company, David included, would make dumb jokes about taking some of the money home at the end of the day. Ha, 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 ha. Yeah. And no one believed that anyone would ever actually go through with that until in March of 1997, a Loomis employee down in Florida made off with a truck full of $19 million in cash. Mm -hmm. So... All of a sudden, it seemed possible, and that got folks pondering. What year was this thing on you said? 97. Okay, so it was like... The Spice World came out, round about that time. I I completely understand the context now. Um, But it's like things like, you know, people weren't, didn't have a super sophisticated understanding of things like the internet, GPS. You felt like if you had a truck with 90 million bucks, you could just drive to a farm and yeah. no one would find you. Loomis didn't have GPS yet, so he literally <laughs> just hid the whole truck yeah, in a right. storage space. Okay. He ended up getting caught because he was a terrible liar, sadly, but he managed to hang on to the money for a few months. Hey, that's impressive. Yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, one day Kelly called Dave up and said her friend Steve had come up with this foolproof plan to rob the vault at David's branch of Loomis. They just needed an inside guy who had all the keys and all the codes, which was Dave. And Dave 
they'd laughed it off, he had never broken the law in his life. He was a war veteran and he was not interested in becoming a criminal. But Kelly kept pressing every couple of weeks when she'd speak to him. And then when September of 97 rolled around, Dave got a credit card bill and he worked out the maths and realised it was going to take him more than 30 years just to pay off that credit card bill. That hurts. So he started picturing himself entering his 60s, probably still living in that trailer, still in debt, still married to Tammy, who he really was not fond of. Tammy. 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 Oh, I love it. And so he figured he had nothing to lose that he gave a shit about, so he called Kelly up and said, you know what, I'm in, let's do it. Mm. And Steve's plan was really very simple because Dave from time to time could be alone at the base, mm. so he just needed to identify one of those moments. And when he found that occasion, he'd then move all the money from the vault into one of the Loomis armoured trucks. He'd simply drive away, then leave all the money with Steve so that Steve could hide it, keep it safe. And then Kelly would help David get out of the country as quickly as possible. She'd then eventually go and meet up with him in Mexico and they'd start a happy Mm. new life together. Oh, like Melissa Caddick did it with Watanda Bailey. Oh my God, they should look at that. Sorry, I just remembered. Sorry, 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 sorry. (laughs) Is it out already? Yes, there's only two episodes. It's terrible. It was clearly a rush job, but they do in the end show her biting down on the leather strap and someone has a chainsaw and it's a whole to-do. And then the final scene is her on this yacht with this super hot sex idiot with this really sleek prosthetic leg. (gasps) We knew it. We knew it. Highly reco, worth it for the last 30 seconds. (laughs) Oh my god, I'm so sorry. That just What's reminded it on? me. What's uh, uh, Nine now, nine streaming service, nine now, or okay. whatever it's called. All right, I'm you gonna go home right now and watch it. I mean, I'm not gonna. I mean, I want nine now's money one day, so I'm not gonna tell you I only watched the last five minutes. But I saw the bit that's worth it. <laughs> it was good. Should we get back to the story? Yeah, sorry. Yes. Okay. <laughs> me interrupt too much? <laughs> so. They'd start their new life down in Mexico. Steve would split the cash up evenly between them, somehow get it to them in secret. They would all agree to keep the money hidden for at least two years, which is when the case would go cold and the FBI wouldn't be looking for them. And then they could just start living like Kardashians for the rest of their lives. That's a tough rule to follow. Mm Mm-hmm, as we'll see. Now, Steve was thrilled to have Dave on board, didn't want to waste a moment. He got him a fake ID as soon as he could. The name that David was going to start going by was Michael McKinney, and they were then ready to press go on the plan in early October. The night this all went down was a Saturday night. It was just Dave and one other guy there at the base. Yeah. And at the end of their shift, Dave pretended to lock the bolt, and the other guy was a trainee, so he didn't notice that there was anything shifty going Mm -hmm. on. They walked out to their cars, said goodnight to each other. David watched as the other guy drove off into the night and then he went back into the building and started moving all of the cash from the vault to the truck in silence. Mm -hmm. Wow. Meanwhile, Kelly and Steve and a few other accomplices that Steve had brought in, most of whom were his cousins, they were all waiting outside the fence. And were half of them married? To each other, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Dave expected it was going to take him like 20 minutes, maybe 30 to empty out the vault, but he'd really underestimated the volume and weight of the paper money that was in (laughs) there. He didn't know it yet, but he was going to be moving more than a metric ton. It weighed more (gasps) than a standard car. More than a ton. Mm -hmm. How how many dollars is it? 17.3. Weighs more than a ton. Mm -hmm. 17.3 million dollars. Because a lot of it was fairly small bills as well. We're talking everything from a one all the way up to 
to a Benji. Yeah. Okay. Um, it took him well over an hour and he was dripping in sweat because he had that to do hundreds of trips. <laughs> an hour. <laughs> it was exhausting. And meanwhile, Steve and Kelly, they're outside absolutely freaking out about why it's taking so mm, long. Mm, they're thinking mm. something's gone horribly wrong. We should abort the mission Get yeah. out of here, just keep our hands clean. Kelly kept sending pages today. Remember when people had pages? Oh, yeah. like a beeper. Yeah. Right, yeah, 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 yeah. And she'd send him a message saying, I love you, but hurry the fuck up, please, or yeah. give us some sort of update. Finally, when he had every last note out of that vault, because he had a real no-man-gets-left-behind policy <laughs> on this job, he set a time lock so it would be impossible to open the vault for the next five days. And uh-huh. then he went to the manager's office and pressed eject on the two VCR machines that captured all of the security footage. Took mm-hmm. the VHSs? Took the VHS Sm- tapes Why with him. Why wouldn't you eject them first? Don't let it record at all. <laughs> Let's talk after this about coming up with a better plan. Before he got into the Loomis truck to drive it away, he walked over to his personal car and left his wedding ring on the driver's seat as sort of a poetic Ooh, way of saying goodbye to his old life and to so his bitchy. wife. Oh yeah, that's, shade. Yeah, that's so shade. What shade is that? That's mm. so like I switched baristas. Very bad. That is very bad. Super isn't it? dismissive. <laughs> yes. Um, he wanted to just then drive off in triumph, but he couldn't because the electric gate was broken and he couldn't get it to open. And so he started to panic, but then he thought, oh, wait, there's the other gate. I'll just go use the other gate. Couldn't open that either. Oh, no. And he was there thinking, oh, my God, it's all over and I haven't even made it out of the car park yet. This is so upsetting. He really was panicking and started contemplating, could I put all the money back and then just act like none no, of this the ever lock. happened? Yeah, it, yes. He can't. He's set. He was he's, got a, he's got to go or do something. Thankfully for one of him, one of Steve's muscly cousins came over and forced the gate open from the outside so they were back on track. Yeah. And they all drove to the rendezvous point and Dave handed his giant key ring to one of the cousins yeah. and said, this is the only key that opens the back of the truck. Do not <laughs> lose it. <laughs> And then he filled up a bag with stacks of $20 notes. He figured it was probably around 40K that he had, and that was going to tide him over for the next couple of weeks while he was waiting for the rest of his share. And then he jumped in Kelly's car, and off they went to the airport. And they were giddy. This was the biggest thrill of their lives. They couldn't believe they'd pulled this off. Kelly asked him how much he thought they'd got, and he said, I think it's somewhere between 15 and 20 million. And she cackled and screamed out, hey! now. (laughs) They were absolutely elated. But then as they started to get near the airport, and this is around 10pm at night, Dave was like, all the lights are off. Looks like the airport might be closed. Oh, they hadn't booked tickets. What time is the flight you booked for me? And Kelly was like, I didn't book you no ticket. Oh my God. And he's like, that was your one job. You're in charge of transportation. And she was like, I am literally driving you right now. What more do you want? (laughs) And so then he was like, well, I'm going to need to get to a 24-hour airport. The nearest one is in Atlanta. Yeah. And she was like, I am not driving you all the way down to Atlanta. I will take you to the bus depot and you can get a greyhound. And so that's exactly what he did. He had to catch a bus to Atlanta to get a plane. 
Kelly kissed him goodbye before he left and said she promised she was going to meet him down in Mexico. In Mexico. She had absolutely no intention of doing that. So does she get a cut of the money without him? That's agreed. Or because she was meant to take take her transportation, mm-hmm. so she deserves a cut She'd of the money. She fulfilled her obligations as far Always. as she was concerned. Okay, yeah. all right. Meanwhile, back at the truck, pure chaos because Steve's cousin had not been paying attention when he was handed oh that key. So he was frantically trying to try out more than 125 keys to try to get one of them to work. Meanwhile, all the rest of them, because they were running so far over schedule, they're yeah. freaking out. Steve's throwing rocks at this bulletproof vehicle. <laughs> one of the cousins is trying to headbutt it oh open. My God. It's just 15 minutes of sheer panic before they finally manage to get the doors open and they start moving the cash into these big, tall, blue plastic barrels that they'd brought along. Okay, I have a question. This is because I watch Breaking Bad Mm -hmm. and I know that because they're stupid and they have paper money, Mm -hmm. it's really hard to keep it from, like, going mouldy and bad and you have to, like, treat it with special mould stuff and take care of it. And did they think of any of that? No. I doubt that very much. Yeah. They're just putting it in barrels. Just putting it in barrels <laughs> so that they can move it from A to B. Problem was, didn't bring enough barrels. <laughs> so by the time all their containers were filled, they still had like two-fifths of the volume of cash sitting oh, there. No. And they started having this big fight over what they were going to do with it, whether they just like shove it in the back seats of their cars and try covering it up with a blanket <laughs> or something. Stick it down your pants. Yeah. They ended up deciding that's too risky. They were just going to have to leave the rest of the money. They didn't know it, but they were leaving behind $3.5 million when they ditched the truck in the middle of the woods. The next morning, Loomis employees showed up to their shift. Dave's car was there in the parking lot, but there was no sign of him. One of the armoured trucks was missing and the vault was impossible to open. So something was very, very wrong. They called the cops and the FBI. Tammy had also called the cops to say her husband hadn't come home the night before. Oh, Tammy. Poor Tammy. Tammy. I do feel for Tammy. Um, Everyone told the cops that they really believed Dave must have been robbed possibly kidnapped and maybe even killed because he was a model employee. They could not imagine that he would have stolen the money for himself. They said he must have had a gun to his head. Yeah, right. When the branch manager got there, he told the FBI that he had a secret third VCR set up to capture all of the security camera footage. So together... This is like a maths reunion. (laughs) They watched the one hour of footage. Yes, they fast-forwarded as much of it as Uh they could. They could see Dave moving the cash out of the vault and it seemed possible maybe there is someone off camera who's got a gun pointed at him. But then they got to the end and saw that Dave did a little victory dance when he finished (laughs) emptying out the vault. Yes. He celebrated his win. He did not look like someone who was under duress in any way. So the FBI felt comfortable starting a nationwide manhunt for David Gant. But he was already in sunny Cancun. So he'd made it. He'd made it all the way to Mexico, yes. He smuggled his $40,000 of $20 notes in his cowboy boots and he strapped some of it to his torso using a pair of pantyhose. 
And when he got there, it was the most amount of money he'd ever had. So he wanted to start enjoying it. He checked into a luxury resort under his new name, Michael McKinney, and switched straight into holiday mode. He spent the first few weeks doing every activity they had available, scuba diving, horse riding. But that's the thing. If you've never had money and then you have $40,000, you think you're a millionaire. Mm -hmm. You can't afford to stay in a luxury resort. No. Yeah, like that's not going to last long. I mean, he thought he had at least $4 million coming his way Yeah, at but some not point. for two years, they said. No, no, he would have it, but then he wouldn't be able to spend it on American soil. Right. I think is what they were thinking. Okay. Yeah. He really wasn't. The whole point of this story is these hillbillies. He doesn't know what he's doing. He's just like, I've got endless money forever. That's yeah. pretty much it. He was eating four very decadent meals every day. Oh, my God. Not thinking at all about Tammy, who he'd abandoned with bills that she was never going to be able to manage Tammy. on her own. He was too busy playing water sports. Why are men? Um, He was only in contact with Kelly. Once or twice a week, he'd send her a pager message saying to go to a payphone in town that he'd call. And their conversations would, in the early days, always go along the lines of, when are you coming? I'll miss you so. Please get down here soon. (laughs) Are you even sure that's how they talk or did you just pick that accent? (laughs) I just went with Southern. I'm not quite sure (laughs) how regional this is. Um... And Kelly'd be like, yeah, yeah, soon, soon, soon. Steve's just, you know, getting the money sorted out. Right, yeah. I'll get down there whenever I can. No intention of going to Mexico. But it was true. Steve did have control of the cash. He was portioning it out to all his cousins that Mm. had been involved in instalments and telling them, you have to be very, very discreet. Hide the money if you absolutely must spend some of it. Make sure it's only for essentials. Don't go making any extravagant purchases because that could get the attention of the FBI and then we'd all be screwed. And of course, all of his cousins were like, yeah, mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, <laughs> totally, yeah, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But once they had the cash in their hands, they just could not resist That's treating a big themselves. ask of anyone. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Within, like, a week, Kelly had bought herself a brand new minivan. She moved <laughs> out of... <Minivan>. Yeah. <laughs> not like a Ferrari a minivan. <laughs> The best we can say about Kelly, she's practical. Practical. She moved out of her trailer and into a nice big old house and she took her entire family on a vacation to Florida. Florida, America's penis. (laughs) One of the cousins paid for his wife and his sister, who I hope are two separate people, (laughs) to each get breast augmentation. But the biggest purchases by far were made by Steve and Michelle. They completely ruined everyone's chances of getting away with this. The FBI started monitoring Michelle pretty early on in the piece because a few days after the heist, she'd walked into a bank with a big bag of cash and asked, how much can I deposit without you having to notify the police? And the teller was like, $10,000. And she was like, great. And pulled $9,500 out of the bag. Handed the stacks of cash over, still wrapped up with the Loomis Fargo seal. (laughs) And she winked at the teller and said, don't you worry, it ain't drug money. (laughs) So the teller submitted a suspicious activity report the second Uh, Michelle left the branch. Within a couple of weeks, that report had made its way to the FBI team who were investigating Mm -hmm. what had gone on with this Loomis case. 
Um, and so they started looking into Stephen Michelle's financial activities and turned out some of their recent purchases included a white convertible BMW that they'd purchased with cash, a brand new Better motorcycle. Than a minivan. Oh, oh motorcycle. Vroom, vroom. Um, matching sun tanning beds. Because <laughs> you can't go at the same time. <laughs> A grand piano, $200,000 worth of Cuban cigars. They were renting limousines to take them to New York City to go on shopping sprees around Manhattan. And they'd just moved out of their trailer as well and had moved into a million-dollar mansion in a gated community that they'd paid for with cash. So the FBI were monitoring those guys very, very closely and also they were monitoring Kelly because, like all of Dave's friends and family, she'd been brought in for questioning, but she was the only one who refused to take a polygraph test. Uh, So they were like, okay, you're guilty of something. We will start monitoring you quite closely. And they started surveilling her 24-7. Yeah, 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 yeah. And while this is going on, Dave's just naively enjoying himself south of the border, assuming everyone's <laughs> following the plan back home, right? Oh, Dave. Weeks <laughs> Well, past. not poor Dave, because then you think about Tammy and you're like, no, fuck you, Dave. Mm. Okay, yeah, that's fine. He started getting low on funds and he was really, really missing Kelly, so he arranged one of their calls and he was like, honey bear, it's been six weeks, come on down. (laughs) She just rolled her eyes, promised, yeah, yeah, she was going to come and she'd get Steve to send him some more money. And she went to Steve to say, hey, can you just send him some cash? And Steve was like, look, I've been thinking we could send David his cut of the money, we could, or hear me out. We could have him killed and just split that cash between you and me. Yeah. And Kelly was like, oh, no, we could never. We could never. Absolutely not. How would we even do something like that? (laughs) And Steve was like, oh, easy. You just go down there like he's been asking. You wait till he falls asleep and you just inject him with a syringe full of bleach. And she's like, well, absolutely not. If we're going to do this, we're going to hire a professional. And Steve's like, you know what? That is a great idea. Let's go ahead and do that. I know a guy. So he called up a hitman who happened to be the real Michael McKinney and offered to pay him $250,000 to go down to Mexico and kill the fake Michael McKinney. So if he's the kind of guy who sells his ID, he's probably the kind of guy to kill someone. I mean, that's... Oh, yeah, yeah. This wasn't his first hit that he'd taken out. Total crim, yeah. Yeah. So he sent Michael McKinney down to Cancun with a big wad of cash that he was going to use as, like, bait to get him close to David, and then when they were alone, he was going to snuff David out. Another simple plan that ends up falling apart. Kelly spoke to Dave and she told him there was a guy whose code name was Bruno that was going to be bringing him some cash, and Dave was like, well, okay, but I want at least $50,000. Kelly hung up before he could get to any of their, I miss you, I love you sort of stuff. Aww. When Bruno, Like when I talked to Caleb on the phone. <laughs> yeah. Bye. Bye. <laughs> when Bruno got to Cancun, he was looking for a skinny, pale redhead. But by this time, four meals a day, David really filled out. Mm. And he dyed his hair a dark brown and he was using buckets of fake tan. Oh, so- like people think you do. Yes. <laughs> he doesn't. It's all real. It's real. Pure sun damage. 
It took a few days for Bruno to find Dave and in that time he just went ahead and used the cash that was in the wad he'd been given on strippers and drugs and booze. So he was having a really good time. Kind of disappointed when he finally did find Dave and handed over what was left of the money. Dave was furious because it was only $8,000 that he was handed and Bruno was like, well, that sounds like a you and Steve problem and off he went. Next day, Bruno rang Steve and said, I just didn't get an opportunity to kill this guy. I guess I'll have to come back again in a week or so. Oh, so he's trying to milk. I was going to ask, why didn't he kill him? Because he wants another holiday. Mm -hmm. And so that pattern just kept repeating over the next couple of weeks. Bruno would fly to Cancun with a wad of cash for David. He'd blow through half of it partying and then he'd report back, oh, failed again. Better luck next time. And Steve was really frustrated, but he didn't know any other hitmen, so he didn't have a better plan. (laughs) And Dave was getting really angry because he could see he was getting played. It was going to take forever for him to get his $4 million Mm. in instalments of eight grand. He also started to get very, very scared for two reasons. Firstly, when he was out one night, an American tourist came up to him and said, you look a lot like that guy who robbed that Loomis Fargo vault oh, back so in America. Oh, over the news and Oh, stuff. yeah, America's oh, Most Wanted every oh, week. Oh, yep. love mm-hmm. that show. And back then it was like everyone watched it because mm-hmm. that was free day TV, was it? That's like, right. Oh, yeah. So Mike was like, oh, shit, my disguise's not working, but no. Oh, sorry, David was like, oh, no, my name's Mark. Yeah. (laughs) I sell software for computers. (laughs) And he's thinking, oh, my God, my fake tan and dye job is not really doing the trick. And the tourist was like, oh, dang, I could have got that $500,000 reward if I'd turned you into the FBI if you were that guy. And Dave was like, oh, shit, the bounty hunters are going to be coming after me. Also, and I love how just all tourists from America talk like that now. That's yes, just your American Forever and always, yeah, okay. yes. <laughs> The second reason he was scared, one of the resort staff had told him that Bruno had been asking around town about where to get a gun. And so he thought, oh, this guy's dangerous. Yeah. So Dave moved, started lying low, stopped doing all the fun activities he'd been doing previously. Mm -hmm. He just stayed in his hotel room, watched movies, ate M&Ms and noodles. If he ever did leave his room, he was carrying a knife, Mm. really paranoid. He arranged a call with Kelly and he was like, this is horseshit, I want my money. I'm lonely, I need you to come down here this very week, Kelly. And Kelly was like, oh yeah, okay, well, we'll figure something out. Where did you say you've moved to? Where are you staying now? And she hung up on him. None of them knew that the payphone, Steve's phone, Kelly's phone, all their phones were bugged by the FBI (gasps) at this point. So, of course, the feds heard all of this. They knew exactly where Dave was now. They also overheard Kelly calling Steve to tell him Dave's new location, where to send Bruno to finally finish the job. And they decided, okay, it's time. We have to move in and arrest everyone who's involved in this. So it was March of 1998 by the time they made their move. Their sting operation went very, very smoothly. They arrested Steve and Michelle and Kelly and all the cousins within minutes of Mm. each other. So they can't page each other. mm -hmm. No opportunities to warn. Almost all of them were naked when the FBI (laughs) turned up, by the way. Just a fun detail there. Dave, meanwhile, was on his way to a laundromat down in Mexico when he was approached by this group of very well-groomed Americans and he was like, oh, Uh these are either assassins or they're bounty hunters or they're feds. Yeah. And he went to pull out his knife, but before he did, he said, you FBI, 
And they were like, yes, yeah. sir. And he was like, oh, praise the Lord. Oh, well, yeah, they won't so kill him. He was so relieved, yeah. yes. He, he really thought he was going to wind up dead. He knew that the maximum sentence he was going to get if he was arrested was 10 years. He could live with that. Totally fine. Surrendered, happily went back to the US to the safety and comfort of a federal prison. <laughs> So this was, of course, a very big news story because the details were just so delicious. And when Steve and Michelle's home was raided, camera crews from every network were there to capture the detail of all the tacky stuff they'd been spending their money on, especially the artworks, erotic sculptures, paintings of dogs wearing army uniforms. And one of the things that got the most attention was a painting of Elvis Presley on black velvet. People were dying over that because it's just such a cliche of white trash or Uh into that type of thing. And because the case had such a cult following, when all of the repossessed items went up for auction, the bids for these things, like the Elvis painting, were outrageous. Everyone wanted a piece of history. Everyone wanted some memorabilia. Even the big blue barrels, they sold for thousands of dollars. Yeah, it's like a cool story. It's like a cult item to own. That's right. And some of the people who purchased the stuff would then charge people to come and see it in their homes. Well, it's like how I paid Carol Baskin $350 to give you a birthday message. It's the equivalent of cameo back then. Yes, totally. Now, behind the scenes, everyone who'd been arrested was just ratting each other out, hoping that they'd get a more lenient sentence for themselves. They all ended up pleading guilty because they could see there was just far too much evidence against them to not. Dave was pretty crushed to watch Kelly testify that, yep, she participated in a plot to murder him. They all ended up going to prison. For obvious reasons, the ones who had the longest sentences were the ones who were involved in the murder plot, including Bruno, who said he didn't realise until he was arrested that he could have turned Dave in and got a $500,000 reward rather than the $250,000 he was being offered to kill him. Didn't do the math until then. Dave ended up serving just over six years. He was like a hero in prison. They worshipped him because of what he'd managed to pull off. And when he was released, he moved to Florida, got remarried, had a daughter, and he has a really, really happy life. He's been in a bunch of documentaries where he's very candid talking about his experiences. Mm. He also got to act as a consultant, unpaid for obvious reasons, can't profit from a crime, on the movie Masterminds. Some of you might have seen that. Very loosely based on this story. It wouldn't have been unpaid because they said Anna Sorokin was unpaid, but, like, they pay it to a trust that goes to another trust that goes to another trust Mm. and then all of a sudden she has the money. They would have paid him. That could well be the case. He honestly said that he was just happy to eat at the craft services table every day and make friends with Zach Galifianakis, who played him in the movie. (laughs) He says... He wouldn't change a thing about his life. He's so happy now. You know, everything that's happened has led him to this point. He ended up writing a self-help book a couple of years ago called The Book of Dave. The Book of Dave. With all the lessons he's learnt throughout his life. It's full of Southern wisdom and personal anecdotes Mm. and advice. And I do have one little piece of advice that I think I'll share to wrap things up here. Let's hear it. In Dave's own words... We all need a good friend who will tell you when you're being a dang idiot. They will tell you, yeah, you know what, this is going to go poorly for you and no, I am not going to hold your beer. (laughs) Solid advice. 
solid advice. So that, friends, is just the gist of the hillbilly heist of 1997. <laughs>